This is Chris. Welcome to episode 308 of X Last, where we've got uh, well, we've got quite the book to talk about today. Um, it's a weird one. It's a weird one. Uh, parts of it feel like it's uh, being held together by paper clips and gum, but uh, well, I can't say they didn't try. So uh, let's get into it. We got a lot to talk about. This is X Men: The Trial of Magneto, number five of five. So we're wrapping that one up. At a February 2022 cover date, the story is called, uh, well, I guess, uh, I guess we're spoiling it here, um, To Catch a Toad. Hmm. Written by Leia Williams, with art by Lucas Wernick. Colors by Edgar Delgado. Letters VCs Clayton Cowles. Designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Amaro white Sabolski. Cover price $3.99. This one went on sale December the 22nd of 2021. And, uh, well, we open, we basically pick up where we left off. We actually pick up a few moments before we left off with the Scarlet Witch just about to point out her murderer. But first, double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters allegedly include, uh, Magneto, Cyclops, who does not appear at all, North Star, Prestige, who appears in the very corner of one panel, uh, Wiccan, who does not appear in this issue, Scarlet Witch, Speed, who does not appear in this issue, Quicksilver, who does not appear in this issue, Captain America, Iron Man, and Vision, who uh, make, you know, they make appearances at least. Now, when we resume, we're inside the Quiet Council's quarters, and Wanda finally names the name. And as if the title of the issue didn't give it away, it's Toad. Really? (laughs) Okay. Now, it's worth noting here that uh, this story takes place before Inferno, uh, so we're still looking at the Council of Ten or whatever. Anyway, when questioned, Toad completely cops to the misdeed. He, uh, he admits everything, he admits guilt, he claims that he tried to murder Wanda during the gala. He admits everything, and so he is sentenced to exile. Now, Wanda challenges this, claiming that, you know, she's fine. So ultimately, no harm, no foul. Magneto shuts this petitioning down, stating that Krakoa's got some laws, and those laws gotta be followed. Prodigy, Eyeboy, and Rachel make their way in, to remind us that X-Factor was supposed to be the focus characters in this arc, but also to reveal the murder weapon. Now, the weapon is a disc of enchanted Uru metal with Wanda's sigil on it. It was found in Toad's hovel, covered in Toad's fingerprints. At this point, Toad lashes out. He, uh, you know, he claims that he only did, or he only tried to do, what needed doing in the first place. Now, he blames Wanda for breaking up the Brotherhood and also for betraying her father. And I guess we might assume that he's talking about how um, Wanda decided not to remain evil after the stranger showed up in X-Men number 11, which we have covered in the Essential X-Lapsed, in which he took Magneto and Toad to that other planet and that other universe and also turned Mastermind into a stone statue. 
And while referring to this as a betrayal might be oversimplifying things just a little bit, I suppose nobody's ever accused Toad of being the sharpest bulb in the drawer. Anyway, as he is dragged into the depths, he cries out that he did all of this for Magneto. So, um, Toad's gone, and the Avengers, they saw it all go down. They're here. Uh, They're, uh, you know, a little bit disturbed by what they just saw, but they choose not to question the Krakoan ways. Now, Wasp actually says, we have no right to dictate Krakoa's approach to morality, which (laughs) sounds like it's... Oh, it sounds like it's trying to make some sort of political statement, but, you know, misses the mark by like a mile. And also, did Wasp or or anybody involved with the creation of this issue even read Avengers vs. X-Men? Which was basically predicated on the Avengers getting involved on that other island that the X-Men operated off of? Huh. Anyway, so the Avengers leave. Wanda decides to stay, however, because she has something she needs to do. And Wasp's like, okay, you stay, but you text me every hour. Which, come on. Um, Now, Magneto also leaves, but we will catch up with him in just a moment. Now, Wanda approaches Polaris, as she's going to be needed in order to do the thing that she's here to do. And uh, we will get there. But first, let's check back in with Magneto, who uh, reveals to us over a course of um, very painful uh, narration that... uh, The title of this book wasn't a lie. You know, it wasn't about an actual legal proceeding, a trial in that way, but a different sort of trial. This was a trial of the heart. (sighs) Then in the flashback land, where the other shoe starts to drop, uh, we're at the Hellfire Gala, and Wanda has approached Magneto with a plan. We learn here that Magneto spilled the beans on mutant resurrection to her, which caused a light bulb to ping over her head. He pulls her away from the prying ears of X-Force so that she might better explain. From here we hop into an info-ish page. And it's one of them sigilly pages where everything's written in a circle. And it's uh, more of the Wanda Redemption Tour. Uh, Chaos Magics, Doctor Strange, yada yada yada. Slightly off-topic, but did I imagine that I read somewhere that the recent like Darkhold stories were yet another attempt at rehabbing Wanda? I mean, this story wasn't even done yet, and they're already doing it again? Eh, maybe, maybe. Hopefully I just misread that. Hopefully it was just a, uh, a hot take, <laughs> and it wasn't actually what happened in the story. Because while we give uh, Marvel Editorial a lot of grief for, you know, not doing their job, uh, that would be that would be a little bit too far, wouldn't it? Okay, anyway, back to comic, back to the present, where Wanda is sketching out a glow-in-the-dark chalk sigil on the ground. Uh, She's also gathered Legion, Polaris, and Proteus. Now, she refers to them as the Prodigal Three. Uh, Legion, of course, the son of Xavier. Polaris, the daughter of Magneto. Proteus, the son of Mora. Proteus, as you might imagine, is quite confused by his inclusion here. You know, he's like, my mom's been dead for a long, long time. What does she have to do with Krakoa? Hmm, good question. I can't say for sure whether or not Wanda knows that, uh, you know, Mora's still alive, or maybe it's just something she feels instinctive, convenient, magical oomph to include. I, I don't know. I don't know. We won't find out either. So with the pieces in place, she begins the ritual, and, uh, well, it's a dud. Nothing happens. To which Polaris says that uh, Wanda's just as prodigal as she is. You see, whether or not she shares Magneto's genes, she's still his daughter. Heck, she's probably more Magneto's daughter than Lorna is. And so Wanda joins the three others in completing the rite, and this time, 
it works. Now, you might be asking, what is this right? Well, it'll become a little bit clearer in a little bit, but it's ultimately a way to get around one of the very, very few rules surrounding the resurrection protocols. The quick and dirty of it is, this offers the ability to bring back mutants who have passed before Cerebro went online. Because, you know, that's going to make the future stories so much more interesting, right? We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But first, let's hop back into flashback land. Back to the Hellfire Gala, which I'm starting to think this is another thing that X-Writers get bonuses in their checks for incessantly mentioning. You know, though in fairness to this series, this is a follow-up, so it stands to reason. All the other books still talking about the gala, though? Can we, can we just not? Anyway, it's here where Wanda spells it all out. You see, she's talking to Magneto about how she wants to atone for M-Day. And so she's finagled a way for her to be a boon to the resurrection protocols by making it so any mutant can be brought back. But she needs to be resurrected herself in order to get this to work for reasons. Um, Now, since she is the pretender, she's worried that nobody would bother resurrecting her. Unless, of course, foul play is involved, or suspected to be involved. And so the murder plot is hatched. Magneto needs to make sure Wanda's body is found. And uh, perhaps Magneto even needs to appear to be guilty at first blush, at least at the outset, uh, in order to prove that he and Wanda were not in cahoots about getting her queued up. And so, Eric begrudgingly obliges. Wanda gives Magneto that enchanted Uru metal disc and chokes herself to death. Now, Magneto takes the disc and, um, well, we don't see what happens next, but I suppose we might assume that he goaded the toad into taking the fall? I mean, if they're going to play up the murder angle, the mystery will eventually have to be solved, right? And I mean, who's going to miss Toad anyway? Toad is like as important to this line as like Thunderbird is, right? So who's going to miss Toad? Anyway, from here, we hop back to the present. Here we meet up with uh, Northstar and Kyle, and we learn that they are expecting. Now, in case you're not familiar with old Alpha Flight lore, uh, Northstar had very briefly adopted a child, well, sort of adopted I don't know if it was ever made official, but because uh, uh, it, it was very, very quick. Uh, now, this child was found in a dumpster, and the child was HIV positive, and she died. Now, this was right around the time, or maybe even in the same issue, where Jean-Paul himself came out. Anyway, it's revealed here that had that baby not died, she would have grown up to become a mutant. And so, she is fair game for the all-new, all-different resurrection protocols. And we'll talk a little bit more about this as we uh, you know, get on the other side here, but, I mean, the Resurrection Protocols, we could always say that there were, like, no rules to it, and somehow now we can say we have even fewer than no rules. I don't know. From here, we hop over to the Hatchery, where a pre-Cerebro character is brought back to life via a magical gold ball. And it's uh, John Proudstar, who... Uh, I'm not a betting man, you guys know that, but I don't think there's a single soul on this planet who could get excited for this. And I mean our planet, not you know the readership, not the actual you know Marvel Earth. Anyway, he's brought back, and Storm does that culty thing where she has him shout his name. And you might figure he'd be like, my name is Proudstar. My name is John Proudstar. Well, no, he doesn't say that. He does not shout that his name is John Proudstar. He shouts that his name is... Thunderbird. You know, the name he went by for like three days back in the 70s. 
that's how he identifies himself. From here, we see him and Banshee reuniting because, you know, they worked together for like three days in the 70s. Um, John snaps at Shamrock, which causes Sean to, like, roll his eyes and give a little belly lift and say, yep, that's our proud star. I mean, they, they spent a weekend together. I feel like they're really over-romanticizing this, and we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. But first, Professor X arrives, and he wonders how any of this is possible. And Hope reveals that it was all due to the Scarlet Witch. And this ritual, or rite, uh, this goes into like the Eldritch Orchards and the Elysian Fields. Stuff that goes way over my head. Uh, because, you know, first of all, I just don't... I, I glaze over, I just don't care about any of it, but... um. The gimmick here is that uh, Wanda's Elysian Fields are not only, you know, able to go around whatever we thought we knew about the Resurrection Protocols, but they're also an alternative to the Crucible. So depowered mutants can skip, you know, the event and just enter the queue via this field or orchard. Or... I- I'm not sure if that means they still have to die. or Like, are we, are we really just putting suicide back on the table? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, this takes us to our wrap-up, where Exodus is reading his scriptures to the kids of Krakoa. This time, he's there to read a new chapter about how the pretender became the redeemer. And he introduces his guest speaker, and, um, well, duh, it's Wanda. And that is where we leave it. Next time out, we'll be getting into the uh, midpoint issue of Phoenix Song Echo, uh, with fingers crossed that maybe there are some X-Men involved in it. I mean, who knows? I would have, I would have bet, uh, I would have bet my lucky dime that uh, the X-Men would have been in issue two, and they weren't. So uh, we'll see. We'll see next time. But uh, for now, let's talk about this. And we'll start with the positive. And I do want to preface the negative by um, acknowledging that. The creative team here seemed to be hamstrung by everything that editorial wanted to cram into this story, and I feel like it was um, the old uh, cursed chalice, right? You're telling a very important story, but you're—it's—it's it, it's not a natural feeling story. But we will—we will get to that here. Um, but I do want to start with the positives here, and uh, my main positive takeaway here is that. Uh, Wanda is acknowledged as being Magneto's daughter, in quotes, of course, uh, because that's a talking point I think a lot of us have brought up um, ever since the demutantifying happened, is that, you know, just this knowledge that they're not related automatically, like, just put them on, like, polar opposite ends of everything, like, oh, we don't even acknowledge each other's uh, existence anymore. That's not how things work. I mean, that's not the human experience. Because they do have a relationship. Whether or not there's any, you know, genetic material between them, he was still her father for a very long time, and she was still his daughter for a very long time. So the acknowledgement that that relationship not only exists, but is strong, I, I think that's my main positive takeaway here, because, you know, make, make them not mutants. Make Wanda and Pietro miracles, or whatever they actually are. Or in humans or Eternals or something equally boring, um, it doesn't matter, right? We understand why they did that. We don't need to go into Marvel's temper tantrum about uh, not having movie rights to uh, mutants. But you do that, and that's fine. You do that because you have to do that. But 
the fact that they, like, refused to acknowledge that there was a relationship there, at least in the books that I read, it, uh, I feel like that did a huge disservice to, um, all of the characters involved and their, their history, which is, it's a very complicated history, uh, when you, when you actually stop to, you know, dissect it. So here, having the acknowledgement, Polaris reaching out to Wanda and being like, you know, you still are my sister. You know, whether or not we're related, it doesn't make us any more, or any less, um, family. So I liked that a lot. I thought that was probably the, the best part of this entire, um, miniseries. And, you know, if I stop and think about it, it might be the only (laughs) good part of this miniseries. Um, let's get into the other side here. Um... First of all, Krakoa now has even less rules, and even fewer rules than we had before. And I feel like we were breaking what few rules there were, because um, you know the protocols were what they were, right? Uh, I, I feel like there's a few a few camps on the resurrection protocols. Either people either like are cool with it or they absolutely hate it. And regardless of which side of the argument you fall on, I think we all have to admit that a lot of work was put into it to make it work as well as it did, right? They were rooted in a a pseudoscience, I guess we can say, a mutant magic pseudoscience, uh, because we had the members of the Five there, right? This was all planned out very, very well. Like, the first time we saw the Five in action, of course, you know, it is very pseudoscience We have to suspend disbelief, but there was, like, no wasted motion. Everything made sense, right? Like, you had a character to to make the gold balls. You had the character to, to speed up time. You had, the, you had hope. You had elixir. It, it made sense in the context of, you know, this fantastical world. And now, it's just magic. Like maybe I'm maybe I'm oversimplifying it here, but is it just magic now? Like, do we still need Cerebro? Have we like drawn a line under having Xavier wearing the helmet all the time? I know we've seen him wearing the helmet in previews for what's to come, but is it necessary anymore? If we're just dealing with with magic, do we still need backups? Will there still be backups? Will there still be memory lapses anymore? You know, uh, one of the things that we've questioned from the very get-go is, uh, you know, what does a resurrection mean for the soul, right? Uh, because the soul should be the whole, and uh, there shouldn't be anything missing. And the uh, lapses in memory, uh, they are that missing piece that I think a lot of us kind of got stuck on. And of course, uh, Cy Spurrier did a really good job over in Way of X in showcasing that those lapses in memory were what, you know, fed Onslaught, basically. But is that still going to be a thing anymore? You know, since we're using, like, mystical, semi-mystical, pseudo-mystical backups? Does that mean when a character comes back... Like, does John Proudstar remember the actual moment of his death? Like, does he know that he died on that plane? Does he, does he feel that death? If Domino was to die in, the, in a future issue of X-Force or whatever... When she came back, would she have all of her memories back? You know, would there be editing of memories anymore? What if X-23 dies? Uh, Wolverine, Laura. Does that mean she'll remember, like, all those hundreds of years, or the hundred or so years in the vault? I really don't know. 
And I don't want to get it twisted here. I don't think that's a bad part of the story because it gives us more opportunity to explore things. That's, you know, just a question that I have, basically. I'm not too keen on making it completely magic because magic... I mean, if you've ever read a Superman comic, uh, magic trumps everything. <laughs> you know, Superman's we- only weakness is magic, because how do you compete with magic? It's kind of like an inarguable story bit. It's like, you can't even contend against magic. It's like, well, how did this happen? Magic. Oh, hmm. Well, okay, you have to accept it, because it is what it is. Uh, now, let's keep going with the protocol here. Did Wanda actually go through the protocol? Or did she just resurrect herself via magic? Because I I feel like we heard both during the course of the series. Um, Admittedly, I am dense, and when magic gets involved, I kind of glaze over a little bit. So this might just be a case of my uh, density or my lack of reading comprehension. But if it is the latter, in that she just resurrected herself, why did we need this story? Couldn't she have just, you know, done this anywhere? I I don't understand. I really don't. If anybody with better reading comprehension skills than I uh, has any more insight, please please set me straight and uh, let me know. Let's talk Thunderbird and how um, we're kind of over-romanticizing this character here. Uh, I mentioned during the synopsis that he and Banshee had their little reunion where, you know, uh, John was as surly as ever, and, and Banshee's like, ah, yeah, bastard, that's how you always are. And like I said, they worked together for, like, a couple of days. You know, they went on two missions together. It feels very, very forced. Very forced here. I mean, if you're going to reunite Thunderbird with anybody, maybe maybe his brother, who actually has a history with him? <laughs> you know, um, maybe we can find out that he and Wolverine had an adventure back in the, you know, in the 50s or 60s, and we can have Wolverine there, but Banshee? I, and I get why they did it, because we, you know, the readers, the people not actually in the story, will always picture them, you know, bursting out of that cover on, on Giant Size Number 1. It's like they were part of that team. A big deal in our world... But as mentioned, the story in Giant Size number one sucks, first of all, and Thunderbird simply wasn't around long enough to make any sort of lasting impression. His primary character trait is that he was the one who died. He was the redundant one. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Now, the return does uh, offer up some questions here. Um, The first thing that popped into my mind was uh, Mr. Sinister's Red Shoes. Is that still something we talk about? Or was, uh, or have we forgotten all about that? Also, um, let's see here. Now, if this story is happening, like, right after the gala, because it is, right? They found Wanda's body. This whole thing is happening in the course of, like, maybe a day, right? So it happens right after the gala. And yet, in, uh, Jerry Duggan's X-Men number one, they named their not-Blackbird the Thunderbird. In reverence to a dude who is no longer dead, and if we looked at the uh, you know the roll call page in this book, Cyclops was there. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, he wasn't, but he was in the roll call. But is there even a timeline that we can follow here? Right? Did uh, did like X Men number one happen at the start of the trial of Magneto, and then I I don't know. It feels like uh, Marvel's trying to have it like always here. 
Though, to be fair to Marvel Editorial, they are juggling like a handful of chainsaws at this point. Uh, people are leaving, people are coming, they're canning books, they're starting books, they're renumbering books, they're rebooting teams. It's, it's kind of a difficult and challenging situation, so the editors certainly do have my sympathy. But then you realize that, A, they're getting paid to keep all this stuff straight, and B, we're paying for a product in which they're not even bothering to, to do that. Speaking of uh, not getting it straight, um, here we have Thunderbird coming back, and it's a big deal because he was pre-Cerebro backups, but the Deadly Genesis team, they're all back. You know, of course, Darwin and Vulcan were still around, but Petra and Sway weren't. You know, they hadn't been seen since their first appearance, and uh, they're back. They're, they're off getting drunk with, uh, with old Gabe there. How, how did that happen? And I'm fairly certain it's an obvious answer, like um, the editors didn't know who those characters were, so they didn't know that they weren't supposed to be there, but still, I feel like, you know, you, we can't have it both ways, right? I don't know, maybe I'm thinking too hard, maybe maybe this doesn't require this much thought. Um, speaking of thought, uh, it is another segue. Exodus uh, sure came around quickly, didn't they? This is the guy who's been like leading the charge against the Pretender for the entirety of our time on Krakoa. And here, not only does he, you know, begin to trust her, but he does like an, like a 180. You know, he's like, uh, oh, the, the pretender is the redeemer. Actually lauding her, letting her talk to his flock. That seems a little quick. That does seem a little bit quick. Just a couple more things before we can get out of here. Um, Krakoan morality. Uh, the Avengers here... Well, they sucked. They they sucked in this issue. They were basically just walking sound bites. They came across as wildly unnatural. Um, maybe we'll find out that they were uh, hexed or something, so they don't remember anything they saw here. But suffice it to say, they did not come across natural at all here. And um, the Wasp talking about not questioning Krakoan morality or how they you know choose to discipline that just struck me as. Um, very message-heavy, but at the same time, like, missing the point of this fantastical universe you're in. I mean, you're basically sending a dude who was not successful in killing someone. This is an attempted murderer. You're sending him to the Phantom Zone. You know, um, hmm, that's a little... It's a good thing the Avengers were so out to lunch here, because they could have started asking questions. You know, Magneto is like, we have laws here. It's like... What would have stopped Captain America from saying, hey, um, since you are a nation of this planet, how about you share with us what those laws are? But no, no, Captain America's fine with it. They're okay with it because because Janet says, we don't question other countries. Which, uh, let's stick that in our back pocket for a little while because, you know, this is Marvel Comics, so we're always about a week or two away from the next alien invasion. So... The next time we have the Avengers going up against some aliens, we'll have to remember, you know, the, you know, not judging morality of other nations sort of thing. When, you know, when Captain America or Thor try to stop aliens from having their own sense of morality. Maybe I'm splitting hairs here. I probably am. But, uh, yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, the last thing here, uh, it's just a question, really. Does Wanda know about Mora? And if she does, how does she know? Is it, is it something we can just say, you know, magic? You know, she knows because of magic? Or 
is perhaps Magneto being a little bit more loose-lipped than we already know him to be. We do know that he spilled the beans on the Resurrection Protocol, so who's to say he didn't need a sounding board, right? Maybe he needed to talk to somebody about some of the secrets on Krakoa, since he can't talk to anybody about them except for the people involved in the secret. Maybe he entrusted Wanda with the fact that Mora is alive, and uh, and it would make a great deal of sense since uh, you know Wanda did have to assemble the Prodigal Three to do the uh, to do this ritual to get this you know roundabout fix into the Resurrection Protocol. You know, stand to reason that it would uh, behoove her to know exactly who the main movers and shakers on uh, on Krakoa are and were. So, I got no problem with it. And I, I suppose I really don't even need it to be spelled out. We can all, you know, connect the dots here in any way we want to, but it's just a question that I had after we were done. But I think I'm finally done talking about this issue. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. If anybody out there read the whole thing through, I would love to hear your thoughts. Did I miss anything? I might have. Like I said, I do glaze over when uh, when magical things get involved. So maybe I missed out on something that uh, would make this uh, a little easier to swallow. Or maybe I didn't. I don't know. Either event, I would love to hear your thoughts on this story, on the changes to the protocols, on the potential doing away with the Crucible, all that good stuff. Uh, The return of Thunderbird. If you are one of the, I would have to imagine, two or three people on the planet who is excited to see Thunderbird back, I would love to hear from you. From here, though, let's hop into the mailbag here, and we're going to go back to Evan as he works his way through... X-Men Green, and today we're going to get his final thoughts as he discusses X-Men Unlimited number 12. And he opens with, I tried. (laughs) I tried to keep my mind open as long as I could. I gave Duggan the benefit of the doubt. I kept waiting for another biodegradable, sustainably sourced shoe to drop. But the most positive light I could put on this story is that it's the origin of a new group of villains who are environmentally minded and maybe not 100% evil. Wolverine showed more nuance fighting the bear than Nature Girl or the Quiet Council in dealing with her. They were upset because she made Krakoa look bad. This story could have had potential as either a drama or comedy, but they tried to have it both ways and neither particularly worked. I can buy that Nature Girl is more passionate about and more affected by abuse of the Earth, but is the story saying she's justified? No. Is it saying there's another way? No. Is it asking me to laugh at Sauron maiming people? I guess. The highlight for me has been your coverage, which consistently made me laugh, usually with you. You made your complaints entertaining. Curse will always be pink Lisa Simpson to me. Well, first, thank you for writing in, and thank you for uh, sticking with X-Men Green from start to finish and uh, letting us come along with you as, uh, as you, you know, received it and digested it. And, you know, to go back to the very, very start of your message here, you said, I tried. And, you know, when I first heard that X-Men Green was going to be the story following the the Hickman and Shalvey uh, Wolverine story, I uh, kept an open mind about it. I had a feeling it was going to be a little bit heavy-handed just by the nature of the the name and the characters involved, but I went into it uh, optimistic, I went into it positive. I went into it wanting to like it because this is the sort of story that should be told in X-Men Unlimited. Uh, I think my main, you know, my main uh, eyebrow furrow when they announced X-Men Unlimited being a thing was, it's like, okay, well, here's an opportunity to showcase some, you know, smaller names in, you know, Krakoan X wallpaper, right? And they gave us Wolverine. And it was just like, 
okay, Wolverine has a book. He's he's got multiple books. <laughs> if we look at it uh, in a certain way, um, it just seemed like a uh, a squandering of the potential of this book or of this title. And so when Green was announced, I was excited. So I was like, okay, well, this is the kind of story this this book should be telling. This is the kind of flavor that uh, a digital-only product should be adding to the overall, you know, tapestry that is uh, the Krakoan era. And then I read it. And it... I've said it before, it's the worst X-Men story I have ever read. I can't think of a single worse story than X-Men Green. And I've read some crap. We've all read some crap. You know, if we've if you were around in the 90s and into the 2000s, there, there's a lot of not-so-great X-Men filler out there. This was worse than all of that. And you mentioned how, um, you know, they this could have worked as a comedy, it could have worked as a drama, but they tried to have it both ways. And not only that, but th- it was so... Uh, is polemic the word, where it just swings from one extreme to the other? Uh... We go from, like, two or three chapters of lecture, you know, strict lecture and murder and people dying because they deserve to die, because they're not treating the Earth right, to a couple of parts of absolute slapstick comedy. Like, it wasn't the structure was off. It was just such a huge, huge swing from one extreme to the other that you couldn't help but to notice it. You know, it wasn't a dark comedy. You know, it wasn't a it wasn't a funny drama. It was like, okay, here is the lecture portion, and okay, here is here's where we laugh at the silliness. And I don't know about all of you, but after I'm yelled at and lectured and talked down to for three chapters, I'm not going to be quite so receptive to laugh at uh, you know Sauron being you know silly dinosaur man. It just doesn't work that way. At least not for me. It may work for others. I. Like I said, I haven't seen anything good <laughs> about X-Men Green. It's usually, this is not good, or what's X-Men Green? So I haven't seen much in the way of positive reviews, uh, so I really can't speak to any of that. And like I always say, if anybody out there read X-Men Green from start to finish and liked it and came away positive, please, I encourage you to reach out. Not that not that anybody's going to have their minds changed, but I'd love to have that discussion. I think that could be a, a very interesting and enlightening discussion for us to have here on the show. But once again, thanks so much, Evan, for writing in on that uh, on that storyline. It's been a lot of fun following your uh, following your you know your trek through X Men Green. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you for that. But I think that'll do it for us for today. I've solicited a lot of feedback today, so I probably ought to give uh, a way to uh, to send that stuff in. Uh, I don't think anybody will, but hey, <laughs> fingers crossed somebody does. Uh, you can reach me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog notes and... No, blog posts and show notes. I say, I've said that like 300 times now, and I, I still get it wrong. Uh, the blog, it's chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Uh, the Facebook group, 90s X-Men. The audio archives, chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere you find noise on the internet. And finally, there is the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash xlapsed for exclusive content, behind-the-scenes stuff, and a great group of folks to chat with. But I think that'll do it for today. 
I'd like to thank you all so much for putting up with me today. And uh, till next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.